Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Oil prices are just a tick down today ahead of that all-important OPEC meeting. Will they all come together, have a kumbaya moment, and have an agreement that doesn't end up with Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran and Brazil on the other? Joining us now, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting. She is an energy industry and Middle East expert. She is also author of Saudi Inc., uh, which takes a look at Saudi Aramco and the family that controls the multi-trillion dollar enterprise. Dr. Walt, thank you so much for joining us. What do you expect to happen at the uh, upcoming meeting, which takes place in less than 24 hours? I think that right now we are leaning towards some sort of agreement for a across-the-board production increase, and that's probably one of the reasons why we're seeing oil ticking downwards. Uh, what's interesting right now is that Saudi Arabia is floating proposals of potential increases of anywhere between 800,000 barrels per day to 1.8 million barrels per day. Now, the key here, though, is that even if that is pushed through through on paper, in practice, because countries like Venezuela and Iran and Angola can't actually increase their production, uh, they're just physically and uh, financially unable to, that wouldn't actually bring that much oil back onto the market. An increase of 1.5 million barrels per day would only add 800,000 barrels per day. Does any potential agreement also have political implications when it comes to Iran and Saudi Arabia? Yeah, and this is the big the big question. Iran has come into this meeting kind of with its uh 
uh, pistols blazing. It said, no agreement. It's not going to agree to any kind of production increase. Uh, it's going to veto anything that uh, that's put forward. And so it really does that they really are pitted kind of across from each other. Now, what I think is, is likely uh, that we will see is some sort of agreement that allows Iran with, with wording that allows Iran to say, hey, we're not really increasing production. It's just we're, we're moving back to full compliance as opposed to under compliance. And then to satisfy Russia, on the other hand, which is really pushing for a big increase, they'll have language where Russia can kind of say to its oil companies, hey, look, you can uh, increase production. All right. This is this is head spinning to me on many levels. Number one, uh, the question of uh, Iran and Venezuela opposing output increases or, or sort of lifting some of the caps uh, simply because that cannibalizes from their own business because they're unable to make uh, the additional production. Uh, I'm struggling to see how it factors into the price of oil, because as you were saying, any increase uh, will be offset by decreases elsewhere. Do you think that the oil market is being overly sensitive right now, given how complicated this is and the unlikelihood that it would be a rush of oil into the market? Exactly. I think the oil market is very, very sensitive right now. Um, any news about, for example, uh, news that China is considering putting tariffs on American oil, uh, any news about any um, oil uh, refiners deciding to drop Iranian oil, it all kind of sends shockwaves through the prices. Everyone is extremely sensitive right now, and that's why every kind of uh, bit of news that comes out seems to kind of rock the prices. What about the addition of oil, let's say, from a country such as Libya? Will that have any effect? Libya is a huge issue that I think is really being underlooked right now. Um, the fighting in Libya has taken out a significant number of Libya's uh, storage uh, capacity to store oil for uh, export. And even though um, the Libyan government has kind of take, retaken control of uh, its oil, it's going to take a while to get its oil exports back up to the levels where they were. And apparently some of these, uh, some more storage uh, facilities have caught on fire. I mean, this is a huge, huge issue that could really send Libyan production into a tailspin and mean that the market is really going to be undersupplied going into the second half of 2018. Yeah. You know, I'm just struck by uh, sort of the power and clout of OPEC. Are we seeing the decline of that? And is this cartel basically drastically losing its power? You know, everyone has kind of decry you know, been saying, Oh, OPEC is dead. Uh two years ago when they weren't able to really lift prices, they were they were calling OPEC uh, you know, a relic. And now we're seeing everyone has basically descended on OPEC headquarters just to, to see what they're gonna decide. I think one of the reasons they've become more powerful though is this relationship that they have with Russia. Russia is the yeah. largest oil producer out there. And without that relationship, they really wouldn't have the kind of clout that we're seeing now. I guess the reason why I ask that is because when you think about Iran coming in with their guns a-blazing uh, and saying, we're not going to sign off on any uh, increase uh, to output, they have no recourse other than sort of the mirage of unity of OPEC, right? I mean, they have no leverage exactly. here. <laughs> 
Yeah, OPEC is not OPEC is not um, you know a majority rules organization, but they do have ways that certain countries can either veto uh, ideas or that other countries can uh, override it. But really, what we're looking at is um, Saudi Arabia's oil minister is a very talented negotiator, and he's been described as someone who just doesn't give up. Whereas uh, the previous oil minister Ali Al Naimi would sometimes get very frustrated and you know just decide it's not worth it and walk out of the room. Al-Fali is known as exceptionally patient, and he will, uh, someone, someone uh, uh, one of my sources told me that he will talk and talk and talk until you've, he's basically uh, bludgeoned you into agreeing with him because he's talked so much. And so I think we can't discount that and his ability to uh, bring this group together basically just through the power of continued negotiation. What kind of patience are uh, countries that are supporting Venezuela going to have if Venezuela continues on its current economic path. It's really a terrible situation for Venezuela, and it's very sad because originally OPEC was formed as kind of a solidarity movement for these producing countries who really uh, were relying on Western companies to produce their oil, and it was designed for them to be able to kind of stand up to these companies together. And now that idea has kind of fallen apart, and Venezuela has really been left by the wayside. It's almost as if they don't care, really, uh, what is happening in Venezuela, and kind of see it as, look, it's it's your own fault. All right, well, we're going to leave it there, and I know that you're going to be following this OPEC uh, meeting for us. Much appreciated, as always. Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of a Transversal Consulting, uh, energy uh, industry and also Middle East expert, and she can be followed on Twitter at Energies D Economy. That's E N E R G Z D Economy. So I encourage you to do that. Right now, it is a $71 billion deal. This is Walt Disney's offer for 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. And here to tell us more about the battle in the world of media is Porter Bibb, managing partner, MediaTek Capital Partners. And you can follow Porter on Twitter, at Porter3. Okay, Porter3, tell us, why are these <laughs> assets so valuable to the long-term strategy of Walt Disney and Bob Iger? Well, Bob Iger has been late to the game in over-the-top content. He's still selling most of Disney's product to the legacy television networks, cable industry, and he wants to go over the top. He wants to take on Netflix and everybody else who's streaming and acquiring the content that 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets represent gives him an unassailable cache of of huge, huge popular content to mine. And Disney has proven that they can take Marvel or Pixar or Lucasfilm's product and turn it into a 10 times bigger business than it was as a standalone. And they'll do the same thing with Fox. Porter, when we were talking ahead of this segment, you said that at the beginning of next year, Walt Disney Company is going to launch a Netflix killer. Explain. It's, it's going to be a net, uh, a Disney streaming channel. Uh, priced, we don't know, but if they're smart, they will price it at, at comparable pricing, $7.99 a month to Netflix, or maybe even uh, a discount uh, for the first year or two to build up traffic. 
Bob Iger has has made tentative, unsuccessful attempts to get into the streaming business. Now he's set everything he's got on the table toward building a a Netflix killer and making Disney the -the over-the-top champion in the world. One thing that strikes me is that coming with this, Disney will probably pull all of its content off of Netflix, which is currently available to people who subscribe to Netflix, correct? Without question. There are contractual hurdles that Disney has to get over. Some some of the content that they license to Netflix has a year or two to run. But as soon as those contracts are over, you can bet Disney won't show up anywhere on Netflix. Disney has, of course, ESPN, ABC, all the film content that you just described. Fox has Star India, FS1. If you want to watch the World Cup, you're watching Fox. Also got FX Network, National Geographic, the Film Division, the Television Division, and Sky. Can they put it all together? That's what Bob Iger's grand plan is. He wants to take Disney Global. They they sell theme park and, and merchandise and, and tickets uh, in Europe, in Asia, in China, but they, they don't really have a viable footprint uh, globally. That's, that's what the Fox assets and Sky, which is a critical part of this deal and is very likely to cost nearly as much as the 21st century entertainment assets themselves. You know, it, it sounds like it's obviously a huge win uh, for Bob Iger to get the Fox assets, and he's obviously willing to pay quite a bit for them, $71.3 billion, as uh, my co-host was saying earlier, Pim Fox. Um, I'm just wondering, at what point do people start to worry that they are overpaying, uh, given that there is a bidding war going on with Comcast? Well, the problem with... <laughs> saying anybody is overpaying is what is the price what is the value it's it's not really what it costs it's what you can create out of it and uh disney has has dominated the 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 content and film industry over the last several years last year they represented almost 65 percent of the profits of all of the movie studios in the world so they're going to do the same thing in in Increase and not just incrementally, but gigantically, the profit potential that the Fox assets there acquire, they will acquire. So basically, just so that I understand this, the the idea here is if you have enough of a critical mass, people cannot live without them, and that all of that content that people have gotten used to being able to stream elsewhere, they will not be able to get except directly from Disney, uh, which will undermine the business model of Netflix. That that's exactly right, and Disney has existed in in the legacy media world on tra- retransmission rights and contracts with cable and and uh, traditional television networks uh, for their content. That has eroded. Everybody looked at at the the decline in in uh, viewers and uh, of ESPN, and that had a big impact on Disney's share price over the last eighteen months. They they want to control the direct-to-consumer facing that their content can generate. They don't want to depend on old media. Ten years from now, we won't even have a cable television system. All the cable companies will be going over the top. I'm glad you mentioned stock prices, because if you compare what investors in Comcast uh, have done to their stock, it's down 17% so far this year. So clearly they're not dying to have this deal come through. On the other hand, Walt Disney shares basically unchanged. That's right. Why do you believe investors in Comcast feel so 
let's say, negatively about this potential deal? Well, if, if this deal were to, to go to Comcast, uh, they would take on $170 billion of new debt. They're already well over leveraged and investors don't like that. And I think that that's a serious problem with Brian Roberts' all cash offer. The interesting thing, and it's not been made very clear by the media, the interesting thing about Disney's new offer is it on the surface, it appears to be half cash and half stock. But Disney put a, a rider in there that if any shareholder decides to take it in all stock, he can. And certainly the Murdoch interests are going to take all all stock because one of Rupert's legacies is, I want to be the largest shareholder in Disney, the wor- the biggest entertainment company in the world. So, and taxes. For, yeah. And no taxes, right, Until unless he sells. Pim, I'm glad you brought up stock prices because Netflix, uh, meanwhile, which uh, you know we're saying is going to face some stiff competition, Netflix shares at record highs, $418 a share. What do you think is going to happen to Netflix if uh, Disney goes through with this? It, it's a Momo stock. It just keeps going up because everybody says they keep adding subscribers. But they, they look at the cash flow. It's de minimis. And look at the, the, the increasing content costs that they're having to budget to, to keep those subscribers coming on board. Uh, it's not a sustainable business model. And the market is taking advantage of the momentum. Um, they, they, they are very good at marketing. They're very good at, at selling a few original titles that have massive appeal. But what are they going to do when they run out of hits? And they can't keep doing it. The, the odds against making a hit in Hollywood for the last 100 years have been two out of 10 break even and one out of 10 is a blockbuster. What happens to the other nine? Most of those end up in the dumper at Netflix. Porter Bibb, thank you so much for being with us. Highly illuminating. Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners uh, in New York. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. It looked like perhaps things were coming down for Italy after their bond yields blew out uh, just weeks ago. Uh, But today, well, the turmoil is back. Joining us now to talk about that is Alberto Gallo. He's partner and portfolio manager for the Algebris Macro Credit Fund at Algebris Investments Limited. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Alberto, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, this latest hiccup is coming after two prominent Eurosceptics were handed key roles in the Italian parliament. Do you think that the hiccup uh, today is a more longer lasting kind of uh, concern that will cause investors to continue just to withdraw from the nation? Uh, Good morning. I I do think that the situation will remain volatile and simply because the spending plans are very ambitious from the from the Italian government. So you're looking at a potential planned spending of 100 billion euros, which probably will be revised down. But still unfunded by uh, tax raises. So uh, we think the short term 
probability of euro exit, you know, all these fears of a weekend type exit are a bit overdone, but the deficit spending is still a problem in an environment where, you know, Europe isn't really focusing on growth. So um, it's good to think about growth, but um, the deficit spending plans they have are excessive. So, Alberto, when does this hiccup turn into acid reflux? We've already seen a, you know, a repricing in the Italian BTPs and some of the assets, some of the other assets like stocks and, and bonds. The reality is on the ground, the corporates are the corporates that have survived the crisis. Um, you know, around one in four small or medium businesses have defaulted throughout the crisis. So the remaining corporates are much stronger. But obviously, you know, you know, the the situation, you know, a crisis situation um, scares investors, and we have seen a repricing across all assets. But we see fundamentals still strong on the ground. Um, what we see is political volatility, and unfortunately, you know, that's something that will continue in Europe because Europe needs to change. Europe needs to change towards a more cohesive union that focuses on growth, not just on austerity. And I think, you know, even in Germany. Um, Angela Merkel is getting the message with some uh, dwindling in, in her consensus. So here, here's what's so amazing to me. You know, you say that there's been a repricing, and certainly there has. And two-year Italian yields are now, <gasps> gasp, less than 90 basis points, 0.9%, right? This is still uh, nothing. Mamma mia. Mamma mia, indeed. Uh, so repricing to even, uh, you know, extremely low levels from unbelievably uh, low levels. You do have to wonder, given the fact that the ECB has basically demonstrated its willingness to backstop this market, uh, given the fact that you are seeing other peripheral regions also experience weakness on the heels of what's going on in Italy, is this a buying opportunity for you? Uh, uh, as the head of a macro credit fund? We think that there are some things in credit that are becoming interesting. Um, we are still looking at um, corporate credit and some banks uh, in countries that remain very stable you know, from a political perspective, like Spain or Portugal. And tonight we'll learn the uh, Eurogroup uh, solutions for Greece, which has been working on reforms for a very long time and is waiting for debt relief. And there, there's very likely to be a, an extension of maturities for the loans to Greece. So when you see indiscriminate selling across the whole of Europe, uh, every risk asset selling off because of one country, because of one political headline, yeah, that creates some, um, some buying opportunities. Uh, in Italy, we do think the volatility will continue in the long end of the curve. So five year plus, 10 year plus BTPs. So, you know, it's a bit early to, to step in. But in other countries, there are some opportunities. So you were saying uh, in, in corporate debt uh, in perhaps uh, Spain or Portugal, um, are there particular industries that you see as uh, being immune to some of the political discussions and, and seeing uh, opportunities in? Uh, generally, the... You know, volatility will hit every um, every credit uh, in these countries in Europe. Um, the uh, corporates have been historically much more resilient to sovereign uh, to sovereign uh, volatility because corporates have deleverage, they have good balance sheets, and many of them could survive even the worst case of a euro exit. The banks are more connected to the sovereign still in Europe, uh, even though they have sold a lot of sovereign debt. 
Um, Greece has been uh, in the sovereign market. Greece has been uh, very resilient in the last few weeks because, again, it's going to benefit from a potential extension of maturities. And Greece remains the widest name, the widest uh, sovereign debt um, in Europe with uh, you know, a 10-year yield of 4.2% in, in euros, which is equivalent to around 7%, 7 plus percent in dollars. So it's trading still like an emerging market. Um, so we, we think still Greece is a good opportunity, given the um, uh, you know the ESM European Stability Mechanism just declared that they have satisfied all the 88 reforms they needed to do to get help. Um, so we think Greece is repricing towards the same trajectory as, as Portugal. Uh, but generally speaking. Um, we continue to see political risk, populism in Europe and in, in other countries creating volatility for investors. And we've been working on strategies that are short, uh, yeah. like, our, our, um, uh, like a new fund that we launched a few days ago. Thank you very much. Alberto Gallo is a partner and portfolio manager at Algebras UK Limited, talking about corporate debt in Europe. So we have been talking quite a bit about the Supreme Court decision. It is uh, one that is absolutely moving markets. Basically, it frees states and local governments to start collecting billions of dollars in sales tax from Internet retailers uh, that don't currently charge tax to their customers. Shira Oveday joins us now. She is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things tech. I'm looking at some of the bigger declines. Overstock.com down more than 1.3%. Amazon down nearly a percent. eBay down 2%. Uh, just how much does this potentially bite into the business of these online behemoths? I, I don't know. I think it's probably not that big of a deal, particularly for the largest um, e-commerce companies like Amazon. So the, the issue is that Amazon, for example, already charges sales tax um, in f for for products that it sells directly to shoppers um, on any in any state that charges sales tax so that doesn't that doesn't do anything for Amazon but there are also um, about half the sales on on Amazon are coming from these independent merchants that use Amazon as a sales channel and they may or may not charge sales tax so now there'll have to be probably some enforcement mechanisms on sales tax in in on those independent merchants. But look, Amazon and eBay too, they're wealthy companies. They can afford it. The burden though falls on these smaller players, these independent merchants, these mom and pop shops that are now going to have to figure out the tangle of US sales tax rules in every state in the country. And it's worth noting, right, that they are not charging it. They're just collecting it. That, that's right. Right. They're and the reason, I, the reason I say this is because that feeds into the, your, your point about third party sellers that use Amazon or even maybe Facebook as a platform in order to sell. And now they have to compete with the stores that are around the corner, perhaps. That's right. And I look, it's it's there's been some research on the impact of uh, what happens to the sales of an online retailer when they begin to charge sales tax. And at least from what I've seen, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, it's not like 
Well, oh, they've already run out of town, all of the, the independents. <laughs> right, I mean, because this has been going on since Amazon started in business, yep. and that was a way to beat the competition because it actually took less money out of the consumer pocket. It was. I mean, look, it's it's a good point that Amazon for many years fought paying sales tax, uh, in part, be- I mean, the, its stated rationale was the company wanted there to be a national rule about sales tax and not this kind of state-by-state hodgepodge. But you're right, it did give Amazon an advantage at least on paper, that its its uh, bottom line for shoppers was less expensive than Walmart or whoever was forced to yeah. charge a sales tax on, on everything. All right. So uh, Shira Ovide has spoken, and it seems like perhaps people are overreacting with a knee-jerk reaction, that this will somehow sink earnings for the Amazons and Ebays of the world. Uh, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing that, but it's No, that's like, totally right. Um, Shira, I do want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, Intel uh, made news today by firing their chief executive for a consensual relationship um, with an employee. This, to me, seemed to signal a sea change in tolerance for some of these things. Uh, What's your take? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, Look, Brian Grzanich is not the first CEO to be pushed out over a consensual relationship with an employee. Um, It happened to the Priceline CEO a couple of years ago. It's not an unprecedented move, but we are in this Me Too era. There is more scrutiny of workplace behavior than ever before, and behavior that may have been kind of brushed, uh, overlooked, or kind of covered up or ignored in the past, it can no longer be ignored, that these things are now under heightened scrutiny. Corporate executive behavior is being more closely watched than ever, and so is the behavior of of boards of directors in responding to that behavior. And the potential for lawsuits. And the potential for lawsuits, and look, and the potential of kind of loss of faith among investors and employees. It's it's a big deal now, and um, look, Krasanich didn't do himself any favors, maybe, by he was... Uh, a very vocal champion for gender equality in the workplace, to his credit. But when you're that kind of outspoken champion for uh, workplace equity, your behavior has to be above board, too. Indeed. All right. Thanks very much, uh, Shira Ovide, uh, a Bloomberg uh, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion for all things uh, technology-related. So if you need help, maybe uh, setting up your new iPhone, maybe that's the person. Not, I'm not tech support. No, oh. she, she's, she's not tech support, <laughs> although oh, she did she did spend about two years laughing at my lack of technological prowess. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's not laughing at you. She's laughing with you. Thanks very much. Shira Ovide. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth. 
and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.